This is the Dr. Duke Show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dr. Duke Show. I am Dr. Duke, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Father Robert McTagg, Society of Jesus, host of the Catholic Current at the Station of the Cross. We'll let you give that information again at the end, Father. I got it right for a change. Uh, nice to Thank see you, you again, much. sir. Likewise, uh, likewise. So uh, this is a topic. I'm really glad that we're having more regular conversations. I think this me is too. helpful for me, and uh, I, I very much enjoy interacting with you. Um, I teach at the university, and uh, we've been talking about tolerance. And my, I'm sort of stunned. My, my university kids, even the ones that were raised as Christians, which is probably about 60% of them, and, and a fair number, maybe 40, consider themselves Christians too, but they're all convinced that tolerance is, is, is exclusively a secular, uh, socialist kind of worldview. It's, it's, a, it's a virtue for secular people, progressives. They don't realize that, of course, temperance is a critical virtue in the Christian faith, Roman Catholic faith as well. So my question to you, Father, is talk a little bit about the role in, of temperance, first of all, in mainstream Christianity. Where does it fit, and what, what do we as Christians mean when we talk about temperance? Uh, excuse me, tolerance. Well, well, when we talk about, uh, about virtues, uh, virtues always have to be said in the context of our moral life. We're beings composed of body and soul, so we're rational, we're emotional, we're physical, we're also social. So to lead a full moral life, a life worthy of a Christian and a human being, we have to strive to acquire all of the virtues. Now, tolerance is, is a curious kind of, of thing. Uh, you know, there used to be a tradition in the Catholic moral, uh, moral law that uh, error has no rights. If you're wrong about something, I do no one any good to tell you that uh, your, your error doesn't matter, that your error doesn't affect me, that your error doesn't affect you. So I certainly have a right to correct you, especially when you're advocating significant public error. And then I have to also tolerate you as, as a person. I can be kind, I can be compassionate, we can disagree vehemently, that doesn't give me license uh, to, to hate you. The, the shadow side, the dark side of, of, of tolerance is when we say that truth really doesn't matter. I have, your, I have my truth, you have your truth. I remember when I was in a moral theology seminar as, as a young uh, Jesuit in, in London, and I was having a very heated discussion with the other American, and the professor intervened and says, well, you know, these are really difficult questions, and who's to say what's right and what's wrong? And I said, I'm to say because I'm a being of reason and a recipient of grace, and someday I'm gonna have to walk into a classroom, a pulpit, or a confessional. I wanna offer people more than just a shrug of the shoulders. So we, we tolerate people in terms of, we owe them charity and justice because they're made in the image and likeness of God. We have no obligation to be tolerant of what is obviously error. So this is the old standby, right? That we tolerate the person, not the right. sin. And as you right. and I both really know, uh, certainly in progressive ideology, uh, secularism, modern secularism, humanism, and certainly even in many Christian cases, and I'm sure you would agree, even in some uh, Roman Catholic par parishes, you will find uh, tolerance as a secular virtue, which means 
we must accept not just the person, but their worldview. They don't even have to necessarily like Christianity. They don't have to agree with any of the tenets of the faith. But if they come to our churches, we have to treat them as if they were like everybody else or else somehow we're being intolerant, which is a horrible, horrible thing. And so this allied between those two worldviews. It's one of my, uh, I think it is yours as well, one of my principles when I talk about tolerance, what it means from a Christian perspective in the classroom, is that if you lift tolerance out of a long list of virtues, that are all intertwined, by the way, all, they are all, they're all complementary, and you make it the only virtue, you get exactly what we have today. And that is you accept everything, even the lie. The lie is the truth. Everybody has their truth. Uh, what we believe and what the Bible says and what this or that petitioner may believe, even if it's contradictory, we have to tolerate all of it. And so can you talk a little more about how temperance fits vis-a-vis -vis some of the other virtues. And one of them is justice, where be it, you right. said this already, right? It is unjust of us to know a truth and to know an error and not call it out. But are there other virtues that are required for temperance, and, not temperance, I'm sorry, tolerance to yeah. actually work functionally, not the way the left uses it as basically do what we say and anything goes? Well, well first of all, uh, no one can consistently be absolutely tolerant. Uh, would you say, hey, do you want your doctor to be uh, a graduate of a medical school that admits the corrupt, that admits the incompetent and the ignorant? And, and the short answer to that, of course, is, is no. Uh, do you want to hire an accountant whose who's schooling uh, tolerates people who can't do math? Well, no. If someone shows up at your church and says, I'm a climate change denying, vax design, denying, uh, racist xenophobe, I, I have every phobia and I'm the ist of all of the isms. No one's going to burst into rousing choruses of all are welcome. Uh, exaggerated tolerance is a lack of fortitude on behalf of Christians because they won't stand up for the truth. They won't have unpleasant conversations about the truth. And then for, for the progressives, it's a form of sloth. It's a form of laziness. Uh, tolerant uh, truth isn't worth fighting for. And you know what? It, it, it's a wink and a nod, Dr. Pesta. I'll tolerate your nonsense and malfeasance if you tolerate mine. Wink, wink, nudge. It's got nothing to do with tolerance. It's got everything to do with sloth and with collusion. I like that. Sloth, of course, is one of the seven deadly sins, as we know it is. Yes. And people forget that it's intellectual laziness that oftentimes right. is much more prevalent than actual sloth, laziness of body. Sure. And sure. more dangerous, I would suggest, as well, because the body is one thing, but the mind is supposed to be at a higher level. So yes, when course. you encounter this in your parishes, when you're dealing with your parishioners or just people uh, in the confessional, like you said, or fellow priests mm -hmm. even, and we hear this call all across the world that Christianity of all the religions has to become mm -hmm. more tolerant. I, I'm always amused that you never hear the same calls for tolerance for other religions uh, and right. including secular governments. Like we're, no one's calling on China to be more tolerant of, of, of ethnic Muslims in China, even though they ought to be. Uh, the, right. the, the Roman church doesn't seem to have much to say about that. Uh, meanwhile, with, with certain aspects of, of radical Islam, to suggest that means 
that we're multiculturally violating the tenets of multiculturalism, right? That we're Western right. culture. We have no right to, to, to uh, check or ask questions like that of anybody else. But when it comes to the Roman Catholic Church Christianity broadly, the whole world seems to say you must tolerate every secular thing, things we would never ask Orthodox Jews to do, for instance. Right. Well, well look, how, how many gay couples have driven past the Muslim bakery to go to the Christian bakery to say, make my cake, damn it. Right. Uh, th this, this, is, this is absolutely uh, dis disingenuous. Uh, it's got more to do with anti-Christian animosity. I remember years ago having a conversation with a student who ex consistently experienced same-sex attraction and was giving me all sorts of grief. And I said, look, I'm not the one who's going to be slapping a pink triangle on you and loading you into a cattle car. I'm certainly not going to be the one hanging you suspended from a utility crane in the public square. That's, that's those other religions that you need to be concerned about. I'm more likely to be the one hiding you in the basement from them, so don't give me grief. So we, 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 have, we have to start with, with that. Uh, we have the right and we have the obligation to know the truth. It's only the truth that will set us free. It is a catastrophic failure in justice to God and man not to tell the truth. And, you know, Doctor, there are times when I've had to say difficult things from the pulpit, and I can see people make faces at me, and I say, look, if you don't like that, take that up with God. I've already got enough things to answer to uh, for, for God, but God's going to say, Bob McPeg from Newark, New Jersey, after I ordained you and told you to tell people the truth, did you go to the pulpit and do it or not? And I said, I'm not going to go to hell for you. I have an obligation to tell you the hard truth. I'll offer you the helps of nature and grace to live that hard truth, but I don't serve anyone well if I don't tell you the moral truth and God's going to ask me about it. I think that's well said. And so my second follow-up question that, that comes out of your statement there is, why is it that relatively speaking, we say relatively speaking, Christianity and Orthodox Christianity is pretty tolerant compared to a lot of other religions and a lot of secular worldviews. It's certainly more tolerant than communism, most socialism, and certainly more tolerant than um, uh, I mean, a number of uh, fascism, to say nothing of other religions in the world. So given that we are relatively tolerant, that we have Christians of all races and genders mm -hmm. from all continents, why is it that everyone's coming for relatively tolerant Christians? If, if, West, if Western culture is a, is a supposedly, it is the most tolerant culture for mm -hmm. homosexuals, for instance, transgender people, women, for instance, if that tolerance is already there, why is it that the same people are coming after Christianity under which Aegis, all these different people can coexist and ignoring the real, for lack of a better word, fascist worldviews that don't let any of this happen? Well, I, I think there's a natural and a supernatural explanation. The natural explanation is that people want to cling to the illusion that they can have sex whatever they, way they want without consequence. And Christianity has always said, no, that's not true. So part of it is because Christians have been considered the ultimate party poopers, that the gospel is, is the ultimate buzzkill for all the creative ways you can violate the, the Sixth Commandment. So that's the natural explanation. The supernatural explanation is because the church is the bride of Christ. Satan is a rebel. He's a usurper. He hates the Christ of God. He hates his bride. And so of course, 
Christianity in general, Catholicism in particular, in terms of the spiritual realm, is, is the team to beat. We're already the last man standing. Uh, most Christian confessions have already punted on nearly all of the significant moral issues. If you doubt me, ask them where they stand on contraception. Absolutely. I think you're right. The, 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 there's a um, appreciable traditionalism of Catholicism, even though the right. edges are beginning to fray around that, right? But it's there. Uh, and that, I think, the stand on abortion, actually, is a, a great example. How many Protestant uh, uh, versions of Christianity have already seeded that, uh, sure. that idea that a woman's right trumps the right of an unborn child? So there is that, and there's something comforting, yes. comforting about that. But let me ask you this. There's a lot of pressure, again, on the Catholic Church. Uh, some would say some at the highest levels of the church seem to have attitudes that don't quite conform with hundreds, thousands of years of Christian teaching. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a big push on now, to you said, to normalize sex, right? So why mm -hmm. shouldn't priests be allowed to marry? Do you see anytime soon uh, the church surrendering possibilities like that, that look, we're all sexual beings, we're social beings, so maybe it's time, we have a shortage of priests, maybe it's time we allow mm -hmm. priests to engage in marriage. Do you see, think that's something that in the, the trends of today are going to move the church down that road? Well, I, I know our friends, uh, the Germans, are, are rather enthusiastic about that. They seem to be in the forefront of heading towards the theological cliff, uh, th theologically. You know, when, when people talk, tell me that, you know, all the problems in the church will go away if we can allow clergy to marry, uh, and I say, hey, whatever you're putting in the envelope on Sunday, quintuple that. Put that in the basket every week for five years in escrow and tell me you're ready to support a married clergy, and then we'll have that conversation. And then the conversation goes away. Uh, remember, uh, priesthood is meant to be a sign of contradiction. When a man is ordained, he says, imitate the mysteries you celebrate, model your life on the cross of Christ. The priest is most compelling when he lives a life such that there's no rational explanation except his devotion to Christ. Why would a man accept renouncing the very great goods of marriage and family unless there was a higher value that he wanted to point to with his whole life? Because what a celebrate priest does, he stands before the world and says, if I'm not crazy, what must be true about God? God must be real. God must be personal. God must be able to enter into covenant relationship. And God must be sufficient for the human heart. If any of those things are missing, I'm wasting my life. I'm so convinced those things are true. And I'm so convinced to, to, that you need to know that it's true, that I live my life and this hard-to-explain way, which depends on the absolute truthfulness of Christ. And there is no lie in the Christ of God. That's a wonderful point. I made that just in my class today. A student said to me, um, you know, sometimes God is not enough. Sometimes I need X, Y, and Z. And I had to gently nudge her and say, if the God we're discussing here in class is the God that we're, we're, we, we both have in mind at the moment, how could mm -hmm. there be anything that he's not capable of? In fact, right. the idea that you suggest that God is not enough is not a fault of God, but it is lack of your understanding right. of God. And, and right. she thought about it. I don't know if I, if I got through, but she certainly stopped and think about, thought, and thought well, about well, it. Well, let, let, let me address that for a moment, because I spent a lot of time on college campuses every spring semester. All these 19-year-olds think they invented romantic love. And I'd say, look, unless and until you've had the experience of Christ being enough for your heart, you will always approach people with a level of need that a human person cannot possibly 
match. And so what you need is to approach person from overflowing fullness, which comes from being in a right relationship with Christ, rather than you, you give God, a, you know, a, he's, he's a backdrop. Jesus is the mascot. But real life for this immaterial soul of infinite capacity can only be met by this one finite fallen human being. That's a recipe for madness and, and disappointment. The church knows better than that. And the, uh, the point you think made about priests and celibacy is exactly why from time immemorial, nuns have been considered brides of Christ. They don't yes, need a husband. They are right. fulfilled through Christ. So then right. in a modern world like ours, this is a, this is, we could take these questions one at a time. Don't feel like you have to uh, answer them both right away. But first one is in a world like this, how do you attract enough priests and nuns? How do you do that where everything they're being taught, even in our Christian schools, and as I found by personal experience, even in some Catholic schools, they're learning that to be a full human, human, you have to have a wife and family, all of that. How do you get enough people in this kind of a world? And the second question that follows from that ultimately is, how do we then take these values and confront the misuse of tolerance in every aspect of American culture? Well, I'll do the, the first question first because it, in a certain sense it's simpler. Let's look at the communities that are dying out and let's look at the communities that are flourishing. What's the significant difference between them? Those re religious communities, especially women's religious communities, who have gone from the grace of diminishment to the grace of completion, presumably the grace of oblivion is next, they're dying out in the past 50, 60 years because they abandoned their roots, they abandoned their traditions, they betrayed the charism of their founder who was in love with God, so then they have nothing. Now the communities that are flourishing, you think of the Sisters of Life, the Nashville Dominicans, the, the Ann Arbor Dominicans, for example, the, the serious Carmelite monasteries, they have embraced perennial Catholicism. They love tradition. They know that they are a sign of contradiction in relation to the rest of the world. Those communities are, are booming. The, the how to fix it, that's already very well documented, but we run into McTagg's corollary, uh, which states that most people have matured past the age of 15 and are still desperate to be invited to sit at the cool kids table at the high school cafeteria. So and, until we spiritually mature and we admit that we've been wrong for the past 50 years and that breaking with tradition is a recipe for disaster, most of those communities are going to wither on the vine. The communities that are utterly unambiguous about perennial Catholicism, those are the ones that are flourishing. It shouldn't be surprising, and they deserve to flourish. Good. It sounds like if I go back to the Gospels, loving the world more than the creator of the world, the be, right. wanting to sit at the popular kids' table. That right. I, I, I kind of joke about this. It, even this is getting quite dated. But when did we, how did it happen that for 2,000 years of Western Christianity, and, and most of the world for that matter, chastity was one of those virtues, just like temperance and, and tolerance. It was one of those virtues that we really prize, celibacy, chastity. Uh, now you got movies like The 40-Year-Old Virgin where now the punchline is the virgin. The, it's the, the promiscuous kids that are the right kids. They're the open-minded kids. They're the inclusive kids. The kids who have sexual experience show that they're more mature, they're more social. To not have sex has become a punchline in our culture. That certainly is dragging some kids that way. 
Well, you know, when I started teaching medical ethics many years ago, students would ask me, well, why don't we sell condoms on campus? And I said, we don't sell latex on campus for the same reason we don't sell LSD. They're both hallucinogens misleading you into believing that you can do something insanely dangerous and consequential without any risk. The reason why the 40-year-old virgin is, is considered a punchline is because we have the illusion that contraception always works, that there's no such thing as sexually transmitted infections, and that uh, abortion is inconsequential. It's because we've decided to cling to the lie that we don't value chastity anymore. I think something you said before, and I'd like you to repeat it because I don't think I'm going to quote it directly. Uh, the, the spirit of contradiction. What is that? What would you said about that? The oh, we're we're meant to be a sign of contradiction Thank in the you. world. Yes, I think right. that is so beautiful because Christ's one major message when I read the Gospels mm -hmm. behind the, the, the basic truths of Christianity is mm -hmm. we, we must oppose the world. We must stand yes. athwart the world to be, yes. like you said, uh, a spirit of contradiction, a sign. Of, a right. sign. Right. You, people should be able to look at those who preach, those who are priests, those who are ministers. We should be able to look at them and see the contradiction. They have given up a lot of things in some cases, celibacy, uh, speech in some cases, uh, poverty, vows of poverty, all right. to serve a God who, who is completely enough. He is fulfillment. Right. And so this sign of contradiction, I mean, we should take a little heart, right? This is not sure. new with this generation. Uh, going all the way back to Peter himself, contradiction, the idea that we would stand with Christ against the world, merited three denials in one evening. This is not new, right. nor will it ever be new, I think. No, 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 that, that's true. Remember, we preach Christ crucified, and that is a sign of, of contradiction. Uh, it's an inversion of, of the usurpation of, of, of Satan, that we, we fell because of rebelliousness, were healed by obedience. And that's something that the world absolutely does not want to hear. I mean, St. Ignatius Loyola, the founder of the Jesuits, said that he hoped that the Society of Jesus would be persecuted until the end of the world. Now, be careful what you wish for. Nearly all Jesuit saints and blesseds are martyrs. You know, I make this point routinely, and I firmly believe this. Christianity works best when you're dealing with persecuted people. The richer yes. the country, the more comfortable the country, mm -hmm. the more worldly the country. Yeah, and th right. th that just doesn't jibe. Uh, when, right. uh, as I tell my students all the time, when are you most likely to call upon God? Not when you're happy, not when you have enough. And in this culture, there's nothing to be unhappy about, and you've always got more than you need. So your Christianity right. is moot, right? It's only when you don't have, it's only when you suffer that most deeply we call upon God. And so while I'm certainly not wishing attrition, but it's hard to look around the, the world, particularly the Western world today, and if you understand the Bible, it's hard not to see a comeuppance heading our way. I suspect right. that when real, real suffering hits, Christianity is going to get real pop popular again, just as it did for a couple of months after 9-11, when the churches were full, until no, right. no second attack came and everybody right. lapsed again. Well, we see that's, that's using God as your insurance agent. Uh, doctor, I, I have a darker view. As the persecution begins to heat up, even in the West, we're going to find that lukewarm Catholicism, number one, even that is too costly, and number two, it's not going to be sufficient. I think that the young Father Ratzinger in 1968 was right. We're heading towards a smaller, uh, purified 
church and we're, we're going to separate the, the wheat from the chaff. I think those times are coming and tragically most of the status quo ordo, most of the business of churchianity does not know how to pe prepare people for what's coming. I have purified you in the oven, right? With the, I believe it's Isaiah says, right? That you have come out of the, the only way I can purify you is through pain and it's, suffering. It's through, it's through the furnace, like, like purified yeah. gold. Yeah. Right. Refined, right? It's a, 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 right. a spiritual alchemy. And that's yes, what it's so going to take, right? Fire. Yes. We take faith that the we take faith that the faith isn't going anywhere. The church isn't going anywhere. Capital C church is not it's not defeatable. Right. However, right. Uh, what has become of the church is there's going to be in for a, a reckoning. I think you're ac absolutely yes, correct. Yes. It, yeah, the, uh, the, hum the human element. Yes. Tell us again, Father, where people can find more of what you do. Go to the station of the cross .com, Look for my week weekday talk show called the, uh, the Catholic Current, and the rest of my work can be found at my website, heraldofthegospel.org. Hope we don't wait as long to talk again. Too much of a gap. Uh, love it. I agree. And that's going to wrap up the show. If you have any questions, comments, or want to support the show, simply visit drdukeshow.com. For all of us at the Dr. Duke Show, thanks. And Father McTagg, thank you. We'll see you next time. God bless your good work.